get started for time's sake. And let's ask the Lord's blessing as we continue today. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be in your word. Thank you for the privilege of being your child. Thank you for the joy sitting under the authority of your word. Thank you for the gift that is the Bible. And we continue to learn and grow in it and cherish it. And we thank you that you can lead us now in Jesus' name. So, just a kind of summary, because last week we had a, a little bit of a hiatus as we uh, talked a little bit about uh, church membership, our statement of faith, and um, encouraged several to take their applications, and we'll see what happens in the weeks to come. But we, two weeks ago we were in the city of Thessalonica, the city of great importance. Uh, um, that was this word you engaged in predictions. The history behind that is that a lot of traveling teachers were going through this region because Thessalonica was a was a place of commerce. It had a port. It had a, a major road that would pass through. It was a place where businessmen, where commerce, where ideas were exchanged. And you would have these traveling charlatans that would come through and make predictions, quote unquote, about things to happen. The soothsayers, you know, the astrologers. And they would fleece the people. They would get their money and they would leave. And so when Paul came and started the church there, was preaching the gospel over the course of a couple of weeks, he obviously was talking about the second coming of Christ. And we know that because of what's involved in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. But then he left town right away. And so there would have been those that were saying, well, where are you? Why did you stay with us? Why did you abandon us so quickly? And so Paul writes 1 Thessalonians to encourage them to stand firm in light of Christ's return, in light of living in a very uh, sinful situation. And so we... He was ready from Corinth, it's on his a second missionary journey, and then he, we, we looked at the five major points. And these are all regular notes. And we spent some time showing how Paul looks at the power of God's Word. And so right away in chapter 1, he talks about how we know that it was God's Word because you heard it, and you turned away from idols to serve the living God. That when the Word of God is unleashed, the Word of God is taught, the Word of God is powerful to change hearts that are wayward. And as a result, then there is a newness of life. And that's what we saw uh, going on in Thessalonica. We looked at, I have not forgotten you, in the historical context of these traveling charlatans coming and going. Was Paul just another one of those charlatans? And he said, no. And so in chapter 2, he says, I hold you in my heart. I'm like a nursing mother who will become so dear to me. So he's saying, I'm not abandoning you. I'm not abandoning you because I'm writing to you. And I want to instruct you in how to live in light of then this return of Christ. And so then we talk at great length about his instructions. Because Thessalonica was a city that was full of philosophical ideas. It was full of people that were redeemed out of pagan backgrounds. Many of those pagan practices involved prostitution in their temples. And so sexual immorality was a great problem in the city of Thessalonica. Well, as people are becoming Christians, they haven't necessarily broken away yet from some of those sinful practices. And so Paul has to say, look, handle yourselves properly, your bodies that God has given you, because he commands sanctification. Now, some of that is a little strange to our ears today because we generally don't have temples where people go and commit prostitution. 
uh, that's involved in religion. We still have plenty of sin around and plenty of places where people can go and sin, but it's not typically tied to the church and worship. And so Christians look at it and say, oh, this is kind of strange. But back then it was people still living in open sin that had to be confronted. And Paul says, live in a sexually pure way. Love one another. Uh, serve one another. Earn your own living. Don't be lazy. Don't be a charge to the state. All of these were issues in Thessalonica. And then, that was the first week. And the second week that we were in Thessalonians, we began to talk about the Lord's return, which is a major theme in the book of First Thessalonians. And 2 Thessalonians. In fact, they're the two books in the New Testament that talk the most about the return of Christ. And what does it mean? And what is it referring to? And how is it accomplished? And when will it happen? And so he's giving directions on that, and the church has spent 2,000 years trying to figure it out. And so that's why there are no end of books, there's no end of presuppositions, there's no end of prejudices and uh, ideas that people have that maybe they need to re rethink or correct in light of what the scriptures actually say. So, um, I tried to present some of the different positions, the amillennial position, the premillennial position, the postmillennial position. If you were not here, I might encourage you to listen to Sermon Audio as we talk a little more about that. But even with those that are in a similar camp, like the premillennial camp, they can't seem to get all their ducks in a row. So some would say, well, there's going to be a pre-tribulation rapture. This rapture that takes place before some cataclysmic uh, period of time before Christ returns. Others that say, no, the church has always been a persecuted church, so it's going to go through the persecution then, just like it does now, and so we need to gird up. There's others saying, well, it's only going to be for such a period of time, a mid-tribulation period. About 20 years ago, a new position came out called the pre-wrath condition, or pre which position, which is, well, the church will enter into the tribulation and get over halfway through, but won't make it all the way till the final uh, uh, bowls and trumpets, and then it'll be taken out. So it's it's like I can only go through so much, you know. Um, and, and so Christians have these different points of view, and some would say, well. That, that's not even the right way to look at it. That we're, what, what we're looking at now is that the church is on the earth. Christ is reigning through the church. He is reigning now. That there's not going to be some golden age yet to come in the millennium. But in fact, there is a type of millennium now as Christ is ruling. And he's going to come back and establish all righteousness. There'll be the final judgment. And there are others saying, no, actually the church is going to reign. We're going to be the victors. We're going to be the rulers. We're going to make the earth so Christian and so good that we're going to set it up for Christ to come back. And that would be the post-millennial position. So they would be very uh, positive. And you have Bible-believing people throughout church history that have believed all of these different positions. And so what do we do with that? Well, within the evangelical free church, you have the freedom of conscience. We, we read from our statement of faith that you must believe in the personal, visible, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's taken more or less from the Nicene Creed in the 4th century, which says to the effect that uh, uh, we believe... Uh, uh, he will come again, Lord Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. That, was, that came out of the, the Nicene Creed in the 4th century. The churches have confessed down through the ages. And all of us would say, yeah, we agree with that. <laughs> but then where we 
quibble among ourselves as we want to divide it up and say, no, you must be in this camp or you must be in this camp. And then you have the ones that really, uh, they don't want to take a stand on anything, so now they're the pan-millennialists, and they just say it's all going to pan out the way they want. That's very true. <laughs> to me, it's like a pregnant woman not knowing oh. the birth of the child. Oh. And I would rather just wait to see that. Okay. Yeah. I guess I have a question. Is Because when you were talking about that last, uh, two weeks ago, is the rapture the same thing as the second coming? Or are those are two different things? That's the whole, where the whole debate takes place right there. Okay. Are they two separate things? Or are they part of the same event? So you have a certain school of thought that would say they're two separate events separated by seven years, or three years, or two years, depending on your view. And then all of the other views, in one way or another, say no, they're part of the same event. Okay? My conviction is they're part of the same event. Based on the use of Greek words, that's my personal conviction. If I ever get to a text, I will preach that, but recognizing that uh, very good and godly men would disagree with you. And I hold what we have to hold firm is uh, the return of Christ. Yeah, because I was, and I told my oldest daughter, I showed her all the stuff, and I'm like, and she was like, well, mom, where's the rapture? And I'm like, so just briefly, <laughs> okay. just, just briefly, okay? I, I did draw this on the board, I'll yeah, draw it again. You know, from the time of Christ, his death, and his resurrection. Okay? For about the first 400 years of church history, most of the church believed in what's, I guess today we call the historical premillennial position. That there is one return of Christ, he comes at the end of time to judge the living and the dead, and then we go off into the new heavens and the earth. And so the, the, the rapture, as it were, and the return of Christ are part of the same event. Okay? That was the position coming out of the early church. With the start of Augustine, towards the end of the 4th century, for about a thousand years, interestingly enough, he said, no, the church is actually, we're, we're in the millennium now. That Christ is ruling and reigning and the church is occupying and proclaiming and making disciples of all nations. And so we are in the millennium now, but there will be a period of time that will be concentrated evil. And during the whole period of the millennium in this view, there's always good and evil conflicting. But there will be a concentrated time right before the return of Christ. When it will get really bad, Christ will come back, we go off in the heavens and the earth. Okay? That went on for a long time. Then you had a period of time, really, with the reformers, some of the reformers, um, but then going on into some of the leaders in North Africa, not North Africa, North America, and in Northern Europe, mainly England, that said, no, there's going to be a post-millennial, that we're actually, we're going to be so affected by God's grace and preaching the gospel and bringing in righteousness and justice and overcoming that righteousness will break out all over. The impact of the gospel will be all over. But actually, we're going to make the earth more and more Christian, not yet perfect, but it will be in a really wonderful state and Christ will return and we're you know, off into eternity. About 170 years ago, almost 200 years ago now when I think about it, there was a new thought that said, well, if you look at these two things, you see that there's a strict separation between Israel and the church. And so God has to deal separately with Israel than he deals with the church. And so there must be then two returns of Christ. 
one to come back for the church, and one to come back to judge the the dead. Now that is the most recent view in church history, but because this particular school of thought uh, has good teachers, these are men of God, they believe the Bible, uh, they were good at doing Bible conferences, they were good at immediately taking over and promoting radio programs, TV programs, video, that is basically the only view that most American evangelicals have ever been exposed to. Okay? And so they just think that's what the Bible says. Now, Paul says, let each man be convinced in his own mind. That's my position. Let each man be convinced in his own mind. But be aware that not everyone has been unanimous about what the same in church history, nor is the unanimity today. And that there are believers of good conscience that will have a different position than that. And we have so much in common with Christ and in common against the sin of the world and the sinful world that we need to focus on what unifies us not on what divides us. That's not always been the case. Um, where Christians look for more and more reasons to divide more and more and more among themselves. And that's, you know, we see that with just the multitude of denominations we have now. You know, and, and eventually we, we break up because we break up because we want to show that we're pure and we're purer than them and we're more faithful than them. And we're like, well, all of us have enough garbage in the attic that needs to be cleaned out that we really shouldn't be confessing somebody else's sins until we take care of our own, right? So, get back to preaching the gospel then. You know, the gospel of grace and uh, that none of us deserve. So that was kind of where the conversation ended last week. Sorry that you just got bombarded by a whole bunch of stuff. Okay? But you now have a little taste of kind of what we went through. And it took us a whole period to get through what I just explained in ten minutes. And uh, it was a little animated at times. <laughs> Which I don't mind. Because if we don't learn how to fight like Christians here, how are we going to engage the world? How are we going to contend for the faith if we don't learn what it is to hear, to listen, to be corrected, to be refined? And so God in His wisdom gives us opportunities whereby we don't agree. But now we have to learn how we can live together. And we have to exercise maturity and knowledge and get to know one another and not... You know, and we're just we're lobbing grenades at one another, which sometimes we get a little too good at. Okay, so that's where we ended. So the Lord's going to come back. Um, but what are some of those things then that are unique to First Thessalonians? So what I have done in this course, for those of you that are new, is that I look at each book, its main themes, but then what are those things that are unique or that are emphasized that contribute to our understanding of Christianity, the Lord Jesus Christ, the church, uh, those kind of things that we would miss if we did not have. So each book then becomes a gift that we see it as a gift uniquely given by God the Holy Spirit to help our library of books be more complete. So if we were missing any one of the 27 books of the New Testament, we would be missing certain things that we want to know. If we were missing any of the 66 books of the Old Testament, it would be the same discussion. Okay? Well, what are some things that are unique to this book? Well, we just spent a long time talking about it. Okay? Clearest teaching in the New Testament on the return of Jesus Christ. If really the only passage we have in the New Testament that clearly talks about a rapture, which is 1 Thessalonians 4, 
then we need to understand what's going on in 1 Thessalonians 4 and how Christians arrive at different understandings of that passage. But its first and primary meaning was to encourage believers who had seen the death of other believers and were wondering what would happen to them. If they were dead when Christ returns, what happens to them? And so this was a passage that talks about the hope of the resurrection and that those who are dead in Christ are doing just fine. And when Christ comes back, they're going to be part of the, the glorified mass of the redeemed that will worship Christ forever. And that was written originally as an encouragement passage to those wondering what happens when we die. We flipped it on its head when it turned it into a who can publish the most books based on our little interpretation of the passage. And we missed the big picture that it's talking about an encouragement. So that's why it's read at funerals. Because it's the hope of the resurrection. In this book, we have a very strong teaching on the necessity of sexual purity in the church. Now, you might say, well, the Bible speaks of it elsewhere. Yes, it does. But not nearly as directly as it does in this book. Paul's very direct in his use of language, right down to saying, basically, take care of your bodies and use them properly. And he uses language that we tone down in our translations. Uh, he said, with the body that you've been given, as you've been made, use it for God's purposes. And then we have in 1 Thessalonians a command not to be idle, not to be lazy, to earn your own upkeep. Uh, don't be a burden. Share burdens with others. Work hard. Because the mindset creeps in. And this was, this was because, think of the context of Thessalonica. If all of these teachers are coming and they're giving predictions about the future, well, if that's the case, who cares what we do today? So Paul comes along and he talks about the return of Christ. And the temptation would be, who cares what we do today? Why should I live a holy life? Why should I deny myself? Why should I work hard? Why should I care what anybody else does? And his answer is, because you're Christians, you care. Because you're in Christ, you care. Because now you are part of a holy body, therefore it matters your work. It matters your moral behavior. It matters how you deal with one another. Because you have a holy God that is actually going to bring you to account. So, rather than just going with the flow of the culture, we should live differently. And that's a message that should resonate to today. Because there is a tendency to laziness in our culture. There is a tendency to laziness even in the church if we improperly teach something. So, I have met people that basically, I've read books where they basically say, look, uh, we're going to get raptured out of here before it gets bad. So, go into debt, uh, do all these things because you'll never have to pay it back and you can just live the way you want to live now and then you're taken. No responsible Bible teacher ever says. Okay? And most responsible Bible teachers do not say that. But you do get that idea out there. Well, I can live the way I want. What does it matter if I try to make the culture better? Because it's all going to crash and burn anyway. Well, wait a minute. We've been told to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth. We've been told to be people who exercise and live out redemption. That means we should be involved in improvement projects, as it were. Obviously, first and foremost, with those that are created in the image of God. But with those things that affect those created in the image of God. We may never achieve perfection on this earth. And I doubt we actually will as the church. But we should strive for it. Because God cares about every aspect of His creation. And so should we if we're created in His image. And even if we find out 
that, you know, it, it's not going to happen. Don't you want to invest your life in the things that God is commanding you to do? Even if you don't see all the results you want to see. I would rather be one who occupies well, who's at his post, however the Lord returns, in whatever timing. I want to be at my post, doing what I'm supposed to do, being faithful to the end. And he'll sort out the rewards and the blessings and, and all that. Okay? So this is never be an excuse for idleness. Okay? That's what he's addressing in the first century in the church of Thessalonica. Okay? Well, it goes on then. So he writes this letter, 1 Thessalonians. And so now we're going to go ahead and now I'll pass out the notes for 2 Thessalonians and we will continue on. So... Um, I don't, I don't want to because I already have my book. Okay, thank you. Oh, second. Sorry. Oh, second. Don't tell the teacher that. Don't exclaim. You're great. People are good, they bought their notes. Now, one final thought before we go on to. 2 Thessalonians, is also what I do is I try to find a verse or two that encapsulates the message of the book. And what, I, what I've said and what I'll tell you is that if you understand what is said in these key verses, you will get the meaning of the book. And so for 1 Thessalonians, these are the two verses that I've chosen. Okay? Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase in abounded love for one another and for all as we do for you, that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. So what is it saying? Be holy, be productive, be fruitful. If you remember that passage first, you're going to remember the message of 1 Thessalonians. And the second one, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord of the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The hope of the resurrection, the hope of seeing Jesus face to face, should animate us and encourage us in our daily life. So, that's how we'll wrap up 1 Thessalonians, but we'll move on to 2 Thessalonians. Okay? Perhaps Paul thought the first letter that he wrote to the church in Thessalonica would solve all of the problems. But he soon learned that such was not the case. We're not sure how he got all of his news. We do know that there were different guys going back and forth between Philippi and Corinth and up in Thessalonica. Um, but as we look if you look at the map, you see where Corinth is, you see where Thessalonica is, there's cities in between, there's Athens, there's Philippi up above, Paul traveled to these different cities. So somehow Paul is getting message and news that in Thessalonica, they didn't get it. Still not understanding fully what, what he was saying. Um, and Paul and Silas are still with him in writing 2 Thessalonians. So this must have happened quickly, because Paul and Silas and Timothy, sorry, were with him on his missionary journey, but we know they weren't with him the whole time. So something's going on, where they're still there, this is happening quickly, he has to write another book. Letter. Huh? Letter. Letter. It's a book, letter, epistle, 
sweater to really long back. Yeah. <laughs> so there's no, in the second letter, he's not trying to defend himself. So in the first letter, he defends his apostolic ministry. In the second letter to Thessalonica, he does not. Um, so, in his first letter, he said, I'm an apostle. Seems like they accepted that explanation. He doesn't have to defend it again. In the second letter, he talked about living pure lives and working hard, and Jesus is coming back. Oh, we have to address those again. So apparently they didn't get what he was saying in the first letter. Okay? So when people say, well, I, I don't fully understand you know, what's going to happen with the second coming and how Jesus is going to do it when I say, well, you're a good company. The early Christians had a hard time with it too. And, and so we have a little more information than they do. But it's okay if we have questions. And it's okay if we don't have an answer to all of our questions. Because that keeps us dependent upon the Lord. Okay? So, because of the predictors, you know, the ones that came through, there was all this confusion about this is going to happen, it's going to get bad. And, and then Paul's message of Jesus coming back, and there's confusion. There's confusion about when Jesus would return. Or the fact that it already happened. There were some that said he's returned spiritually. We've missed out. <clears throat> Paul wants to remind the church in Thessalonica that judgment day is yet to come. That Jesus has not, in fact, come back. And they should not give up this because they're being persecuted, which is what is going on. So that's really the message behind 2 Thessalonians. But there's a reminder as well to work hard because it seems as if some people were still sitting around just saying, well, we'll just fold, you know, twiddle our thumbs until the rapture. They say, no, take care of yourselves, take care of one another, be, work hard, don't just sponge off of your brothers, but carry your own weight. And, you know, when, we, when I was a young missionary in West Africa, we had to learn that there were certain people that would just kind of play on the emotions and what they thought would be the guilt of these Westerners, because after all, we had resources and some of them didn't. And we'd have people that would just kind of float from family to family, just getting freebies, and just want to take care of themselves. And we started discovering this, and we realized, we're not doing them any favors by just floating them along from family to family. They have an obligation before God to obey Him. And so there was one brother from a West African country, I won't say his name, but he sat in our house and he talked about all these things. And I said, well, tell me what you're doing for work. I said, I'm not working. And I said, well, how are you living? He says, well, that's the responsibility of the Christian brothers. They're to take care of him. He was a young, healthy man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So I told him, is that what the Bible says? Oh yeah, the Bible says that we're to take care of one another. So I just go along. And he didn't get, get specific. He would go to one family and ask for fish. Give me fish. He'd go to another family and ask for rice. He'd go to another family and ask for, you know, vegetables. He was getting very specific. And he's sitting in our living room. And I thought, this poor guy doesn't know what's coming. <laughs> and I said, is that what the Bible says? Yeah, the Bible says we're supposed to take care of each other. I said, the Bible also says we are supposed to work. And Paul said, if a man will not work, he will not eat. I said, it is wrong for you to go door to door, begging off of your Christian brothers. When you have the health, you have the strength, and you have the ability to work. 
And so I said, I'm sorry to tell you, but you will get nothing else from us until we see that you are working, and then if you get in the true need, we will help you. Well, he wanted to, this is judgmental, this is this and that. I said, well, okay, but the Word of God says, he who will not work will not eat. And I stand under the authority of God. Goodbye. Okay? And, you know, he still continued to try to float around, but word got out. <laughs> he can't outrun God. You can try. You just can't outrun God. So eventually the word of God catches up. Last I heard was he figured out it was better to go back home. Well, yeah. Go back home where you know the culture, you know the people, you know the families, you know the opportunities. Go back and work. Be honest. Don't abuse the name of Christ. Well, it seemed that there were some people like that at Thessalonica. He has to warn them. So, so Paul is the writer of this letter, probably writing just a few weeks after he wrote the first letter. This thing's happening quickly. The amount of time it would take for the letter to be hand-carried to him or him to write back. But this is all happening quickly. Okay? He's still in Corinth. He's still on his second missionary journey. But he's got to write to them again about some of the same things. Um, for those of us that have ever been parents or teachers or involved in teaching others, we know the frustration of having to someone the same thing a second time or a third time or a fourth time. Paul's an amazing guy. Somehow he kept doing it, you know. But um, what are some of his main themes? He says, look, look, there is a judgment coming. He's saying that persecution has continued against the church and those in Thessalonica. And it would continue. And then in the Roman Empire, the persecution was in fact intensifying. It was getting worse. And so he's warning the church. Saying you're not suffering in vain. Your suffering is to show the goodness of God and that He takes care of His own. That God is paying attention to what is going on. And look at some of the words that he uses about judgment. First Thessalonians, sorry, Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. Let me just read it and listen to the words and imagine that you're hearing these words for the first time from the apostle. So he's talking about their, their suffering, they're being persecuted. Verse 5 says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well with us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, to what end? That the glory of God in judgment might be seen as, as they persevere. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you and Him according to the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Your suffering 
You don't have a lot of understanding, a lot of knowledge. The church is taking a beating because it's the church. How much of these words encourage you to persevere? Stand firm. Judgment is coming. God will be just. But if you persevere, it will reveal to the world the rightness and righteousness of God's judgment. And it will be to your glory and deliverance. And glory to God. Will that cause you to stand firm? Stand firm. Those are the types of promises that have upheld the persecuted church for 2,000 years. In the early church, they said they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for the gospel's sake. There are untold believers today, down through the centuries, who have said we counted joy that we were considered worthy to suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ. And in our therapeutic culture, we want to do everything we can to avoid any pain, any suffering, any difficulty, any inconvenience. Do we have the mind of Christ that says, if it is God's will, we will count it joy, consider joy to be counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ. You know? Because even if there is a certain view of the rapture that is true, we don't know that it will happen in our lifetime. And the church has always been a suffering church. And what if that finally the American church gets its turn and we have to suffer? Would we do it graciously and joyfully? Or would we squeal? Okay. I don't know what God holds. I don't know what the future holds. I just know that He wins and He will vindicate His saints. And if we have to go through even the worst this world can throw at us, it's nothing compared to the glory and blessing that awaits us in the new heavens and the earth. Okay? But that was the context that He's writing. That God will execute vengeance on those who persecute His church. He will judge them as He is able. And we have a graphic description of hell here. Eternal destruction away from the presence of God. Wow. That's a sobering thought. It should be a sobering thought. And it should be a sobering thought for us today. Okay? The second thing is there's some misunderstandings about the second coming of Christ. So here we are again. They don't, not quite getting it. Um... Paul is saying there's some confusion in the air. I need to try to sort out the confusion. But he says in verse, chapter 2, verse 1, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by spirit or in a spoken word of a letter seeming to come from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So within just a couple of verses, he talks about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, our being gathered to Him, and the day of the Lord. And in my mind, when I look at it, he's talking about one big event. Because I look at the grammar of it. But however we delineate it, he's still saying, that day of the Lord has not come. Okay? Um, The day of the Lord in the Old Testament was always a day of God's judgment. And there was the day of the Lord that... 
Judgment came down and different nations came down and different people. There was the day of the Lord when God judged his people, sent them into exile. But we all know that it all points forward to an ultimate, the day of the Lord. When Jesus Christ returns and sets all things straight. So every time we see the mention of the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's not always referring to the same thing. There were days of the Lord that happened throughout biblical history where God judged. And those become signs and symbols of the ultimate day of the Lord, which is what Paul's referring to here. So he says, look, the day of the Lord has not come. There has not been a spiritual resurrection. There has not been some secret thing that's gone on. And now we're wondering what's going to happen to us. Live a holy life. Work hard. Protect yourself morally. Uh, and serve one another because the day of the Lord has not yet come yet. And then he will give some signs. When will the day of the Lord come? And this is where... We'd like to know more. Okay? He says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And a man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple proclaiming himself to be God. Okay? There are phrases in there that the church has always debated about what they mean. And whether referring to specifically what's going on in Thessalonica, either referring specifically what's going on in the Roman Empire, or is it lifted up out of that current situation to a future event? And, and Christians haven't always agreed on that. <laughs> um, yes? Do you think Paul really understood the whole uh, time frame, or do you think it was somewhat of a mystery to him, too? That's a good question, um, since he doesn't tell us. Right. That's true. <laughs> so we have to guess, right? We have to yeah. guess what he meant. So here's the thing. We must not forget that these letters were written to specific context with specific meaning. And when the recipients received them, they understood what they meant. Okay. We may not understand what they mean because we were not there in the two-way dialogue between Paul and that specific church. So all we get is like a mirror. You know, we get one side of the conversation and try to fill in what was going on on the other side of the conversation. We may be incorrect in filling in what was going on on the other side of the conversation. <clears throat> so we need to have some humility about saying, well, this must be. Because Paul has not necessarily said that our must be is what it must actually be, okay? So, for example, there's this phrase in here called the lawless one. The lawless one. Where does it say that? It's, uh, the man of lawlessness. Who is the man of lawlessness? I don't know. There have been many suggestions throughout church history. Somehow there is demonic influence that's involved in this. The lawless one, some think, refers to the government leaders of Rome that were out of control, which is true. At many times in the first century, they were out of control. Okay? Some have politicized the conversation over church history and said, well, it obviously refers to the Pope. Well, I don't know that Paul had the Pope at all in mind because the Pope didn't exist when he wrote this letter. Okay? 
So we need to keep in mind the first century context. Some have said that it'll be uh, some type of um, political leaders who are peacemakers, you know, somehow associated with different intergovernmental organizations. Some say this clearly refers to the Antichrist. But he doesn't use the word Antichrist. He uses the man of lawlessness. Now John will use the term Antichrist, but then go on to say that there are many Antichrists among us. And that anyone who opposes Christ is in fact an Antichrist. Okay? So we need to be careful to make the direct jump between the man of lawlessness and the Antichrist, unless we have clear reason for doing so, not based on our system that we bring to the Bible, but on the teachings that we bring out of the Bible. That's why I say, I don't know. I have some thoughts about it. But in every age of the church, there have been wicked leaders that could be called Antichrist because they persecuted the church. In every age, there have been wicked leaders who were definitely under demonic influence trying to destroy the church. Okay? To confuse the matter just a little further, there was actually a temple in Thessalonica. Is that the temple that's referred to here? Or is it the temple in Jerusalem? And when we decide here or here, why do we decide that? It's because we've brought the idea to the text or we've taken the idea from the text. I'm just throwing out the, the fact that maybe it's okay for us to say, I want to learn, but I'm still learning. Instead of trying to put all the P's and Q's in order because we think we can. And then find out that people coming after us might look at it and say, yeah, that's, that's clever. It didn't work. Okay, because that's what's happened in church history. How many antichrists have been predicted in the history of the world? You know, how many names have been given? I don't know who the man of lawlessness is. What's exactly being referred to? Paul does. And Thessalonica knew. I just believe there's evil out there. That evil is real. There is a real evil one who is behind evil going against the cause of Christ. And when I read the book of Revelation, he gets cast into the lake of fire. Okay, all that's clear in my mind. The events leading up to that, not quite as sure, based on some of the historical studies that I've done. But he's saying, look, this can, certain things have to happen. The coming of the lawless one, by all activity of Satan, with all his power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception, verse 10, for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. Therefore God sends them a delusion, so that they may believe what is false. This is in the first century. There were people that were believing things that were false. God's judgment was coming upon them. In order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure and unright the streets like the newspaper today. Right? There are people believing dumb things today that have been given over to. But it was happening in the first century as well. So he goes on and says, But we, verse 13, we always ought to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, what? That you may attain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions, the teachings of the apostles that you were taught by us, other by our spoken word, I bar our letter. He's affirming, look, God's in control of all of this. So stand firm. Don't believe the predictors and the prognosticators and the soothsayers and the astrologers. Believe the clear word of God. Um, 
I don't know. <laughs> There's certain I, I, I could lay out for you some of what I think is going to happen. First, next, I do believe that there is going to be an increase in evil before Christ returns. I think that that's clear enough. I also think that the expansion of the gospel is going to be incredible between now and then. Because the Great Commission will be fulfilled. Because Jesus said this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all nations and then the end will come. So it seems in my mind there's going to be an increase in the church and an increase in evil. And the division is going to be so stark that at some point Jesus is going to step down into history and say enough. I'm cleaning the house and I'm setting all things right. That's clear in my mind. What the little subsets up to that are, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I just know that Jesus is going to conquer all of his enemies. And I just know that if I die, on, on one sense, no big deal. Because I'm going to be with Christ forever. My life is not so valuable that I will deny Christ. Okay? That's what it comes down to. So, that is the question that each of us have to ask. Is my life worth more to me than Christ? Or is Christ my life? To live as Christ and die as He. And in the book of the Revelation, it says the saints overcome powers of evil through what? Through the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Right? Secure in Christ, preaching Christ, they overcome, but they kill. So how do they overcome? They're faithful even unto death that they will receive eternal life and great glory and blessing forever. And I guarantee you, if we have to suffer for Christ today and tomorrow, and you know, maybe for a season, a billion, billion years from now, when we're in Christ's presence praising Him, we will not give a second thought to the persecution that we underwent. We will be so enamored with the greatness of Christ. We'll just be grateful and joyful that we're there, humble that we're there. And so keeping the big picture in mind, that's what Paul is saying, keep busy until he comes back. He tells them that he worked among them day and night, verse 8 of chapter 3. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but... But to give you and ourselves an example, to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. That's a hard word for today, isn't it? I turn on the TV and it's like... Well, you're entitled to, and you need your fair share, and somebody else has to give a their fair share. I don't hear the Apostle Paul in that. I deserve it. I hear a very different spirit than that kind of thinking, and it's not from the Spirit of God. It's from the spirit of greed, of covetousness, of jealousy. They're not getting their fair share. I'm not getting all I deserve. Paul says the exact opposite. Work hard. Take care of yourself. Do not be idle. Don't be a burden. You see how countercultural it is even today? And it certainly was in the time of Thessalonica. Okay? So, you know, those are difficult conversations to have out in the community, right? But they're worth it. 
Because if someone's created the image of God, which all people are, even the most drugged out, obnoxious, dumb person who has ruined his life through addiction, has created the image of God, he needs to hear the truth about his responsibilities before God, about his need to repent and believe the gospel, about his need to take responsibilities now to bring about being a responsible citizen. And if he doesn't want to hear that, he also needs to be warned about what is to come. That's true love. That is love that says, look, I love you enough. I don't want you to ruin your life here and go to hell afterwards. I want to help you. I want to see what you can do. You need to face the music, so to speak. You know? And wake up and turn. And God is a redeeming God. That's what Paul's telling the church in Thessalonica. So he's probably saying, don't worry about your charts, about when Christ is going to come back. Worry about living a holy life, taking care of one another, serving, being holy, being willing to go through whatever, and stay busy. You know, don't you want the Lord to find you at your post, busy, with whatever it is you're supposed to do? And you know what what sometimes being busy is? Resting in the Lord. And working. (laughs) And working. But sometimes working is resting in the Lord. Right? Sometimes, I just, I've just i learned this in all my years of ministry, the most spiritual thing I can do is go home and take a nap. I'm physically exhausted, which means I'm not spiritually sharp, which means I'm emotionally fragile, which means I'm going to get angry with people. Yeah, sorry. I'm flesh and blood, I believe. Okay? Sometimes the most spiritual thing I can be is taking a nap. And that would be doing the Lord's will, taking care of myself, not because I'm supposed to take care of myself. I'm supposed to take care of what he has given me, which is my body, which is my mind, which is my heart, which is my family, right? So I'm not talking about working ourselves to death. We are not to be obsessed with work where we serve work to serve work. But we work because it's service to the Lord. And when we keep that order, work then becomes an honor. Work is a delight. Work is witness. Work is a way of uh, praising the Lord. And I love to work. I love my work. But sometimes the best way I can love my work is to close my books and go with my wife on a walk along the river. Right? Which we did a week ago, not yesterday. Yesterday we went shopping. <laughs> <laughs> but you see, what I, you see what Paul's getting at. Responsible Christian living is hard work, but joyful work. It's holy work. It's persevering work. Keep busy until he comes back. That's the message of 2 Thessalonians. So, what are some things that are unique about it? Well, maybe you're going to write the definitive book on what is the the identity of the man of lawlessness. He mentions it. He does not tell us who it is or what it is. He doesn't tell us what the power is that is holding back the man of lawlessness. Some say it's the Roman government. Some say it's the church. Some say it's the Holy Spirit. Each of those answers creates problems that we have to try to figure out. Okay? So we can have our convictions, but also know that there are questions that you have to ask if this is your position. Um, He just says that the man of lawlessness will be overthrown by the breath of the Lord Jesus when he returns. Now think about that. Think of this uh, beautiful image. Evil seems to be so powerful. We sing it in the song, right? Sometimes the wrong seems oft so strong. God is the ruler yet. How much effort is there in the breath of Jesus? Gone. Okay? 
That's where our hope lies. That's where our hope lies. Evil may look very strong with a breath, Paul says. Okay? And it talks about the reality of hell. The reality of persevering and not, and not uh, neglecting the gospel. It clearly says it here several times, those who refuse to listen to the truth. And we all know people like that, right? We don't give up on them, what do we? Because we pray that God can do His work. This is a reminder. I prayed for 35 years for my father to come to faith in Christ. But he did. The last year and a half of his life. Okay? Don't give up on him. Because God will cause us to persevere in doing what is right. Which is praying, evangelizing, living a holy life, all those things. Okay. What are the key verses then that we would use? To this, he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold the, the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. What he is saying is, what ends up being the word of God, what has been given to you through the apostolic tradition and the prophets, that is now the word of God, hold fast to what is in here. Because there's going to be a lot of other things that are going to come. They're going to say, hey, I've got the secret to. I've got the four steps to. I've got the, the, the seven-week plan to. Okay? <laughs> we see that all the time. But what is ultimately really true is this. The traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter, and now all them together. Sorry I say books, because this is a library. 66 books. But letter works as well. Letters that form different chapters, if you will. In a book. But that, I meant, when he returned it so quickly. Oh, the letter. Yes. Sometimes you get, you know, you got somebody's Christmas letter, and then later on, you know, you acknowledge that. You're right. Letter. But sometimes you get a letter, an email, and it's like, okay, I need to return this. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Any questions or thoughts on that? As we've gone through the Thessalonian now, this is... Next week, we'll start the pastoral epistles, where Paul is a pastor is training young men how to be spiritual leaders in the church. Yes? And just comment back to work. Work is the work that God has given us to. Yes, yes. Given to us to do. Yes. And it's, sometimes it's compensated on a regular basis. Yes. And sometimes we're just doing what we're supposed to be doing. Yes. So those who are doing what God has told them to do, uh, be they moms, grandmas, yes. retired. We're, we're doing what God wants us to do. Yes. We're doing His work. And to provide for us, many receive compensation. Yes. In, in a monetary Yes. God is often pleased to bless the work of our hands. But sometimes the way He does it is not the way that we automatically think. It could be other ways. Yeah, all work that is according to God's will is honorable. I'm really glad they're good dishes. I'm really glad that there are people that know how to take care of pipes and uh, electrical lines and internet connections. And I'm really glad that people know how to do surgery. Okay? So all work that is done according to the will of God and the purposes of God for the well-being of human beings I, is, is honorable work. Um... But work is always a means to something else. It is a means to worshiping God. It is a means to giving to God's uh, plan. It is a means to providing for us. We were created to work. Work came before the fall. 
We will work in the eternal city. It's just there won't be burdensome. It won't be hard. It'll be a joy. Okay? So work itself is not evil. It's that work became tedious. The work became hard because of that. We're created to work. And we're redeemed to work. And we will work in the eternal state. And it will be to our eternal delight to do it. Because it will be from the Lord. Okay? Something about idle hands. What's that? Something about idle hands. Idle hands. Idle hands. Idle hands. There you go. Idle hands. Sorry, I didn't hear it the first time. No, so don't have idle hands. We won't have idle hands in the eternal city. Devil's workshop. And the one thing I was always taught was when you work, you work as if you're working for God. Yeah. Well, of course. But that would be when you rest. When you eat, do it for the glory of God. Whatever it is, we're told it's for the glory of God. Right? So work is part of the rhythm of life, but it's not the only thing in life. All right. Let me pray aside. Father, thanks for a good discussion. Thank you for the hope that Jesus is coming back. Father, I pray that our hearts would be humbly attuned to your word. Father, we're not afraid to ask the questions that you might uh, cause us to ask because of these words, but help us to be humble to receive the responses. And then at times to say, I don't know, but I'm glad you do. And then we're in good hands. Father, I pray that we would be a people that would work hard, 